Thanks for checking out the weekly sermon from Church of the Resurrection. We pray that God will use this message to speak to you and help you grow in your faith journey. We'd like to invite you to join us next week at one of our services, whether in live worship online at court.org live or in person at one of our locations in the Kansas City area. Church of the Resurrection is one church in multiple locations. To learn more about our service times and ministries, please visit Cora.org. We hope you enjoy this message. My name is Blake Thomas. I'm one of the pastors here at Resurrection. As we continue in worship, I invite you to hear these words from Scripture today from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. This slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure, because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. May God add a blessing to the hearing, reading, and understanding of the scripture. What would lead a first century rabbi to travel thousands of miles by sea and by land, to be beaten, imprisoned, and ultimately beheaded for his faith? It was a call, a call to turn the world upside down. This is the story of the Apostle Paul whose writings continue to shape the lives of one-third of the world's population, a man second only to Jesus in his impact and influence on the Christian faith, and whose witness defines what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. How I wish I had six more weeks for this sermon series because there's so much I'm leaving on the cutting room floor, but I'm so glad you're here as a part of this as we're studying the life and the journeys of the Apostle Paul. Today, we come to the last in this series. We're going to look at how Paul faced adversity, suffering, opposition, and death. And as we look at that, we're going to be asking, how do we learn from him so that we might face adversity differently. We might face it with the same kind of hope and the same kind of perseverance that he had. Now, before we jump into how he faced adversity with hope and perseverance, I want to just take you back to last week. So last week, we learned that Paul took three missionary journeys that are recorded in the book of Acts. Paul feels called by God, by Jesus, to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to the Greco-Roman world, outside of Judaism, into the Gentile world. And so he takes one missionary journey, takes him to central Turkey. That's his first one, uh, the, the area known as Asia Minor in Paul's day, and he's starting churches in the area or the region known as Galatia. So that's his first missionary journey. And he goes back to Antioch in, uh, in, in basically what was known as Syrian Antioch at the time. He then takes a second missionary journey and he goes through the, visits the same churches. Then he goes all the way over to Macedonia and Greece. So this is modern day Greece. And he takes the gospel into Europe. On his third missionary journey, let me just show you where he takes the, the gospel, what he does on his third missionary journey, and then we'll jump into the real focus of our sermon today. So once more, we have, uh, we have Google Earth to thank for these maps. Paul starts off in Antioch. Let's get a different color here. He starts off in Antioch, the third largest city in the Roman Empire. 
there. He travels by land through his hometown of Tarsus, passes through the Cilician Gates in, uh, in the Taurus Mountains. He heads over to Derby, to Lystra, to Iconium, and, uh, and then on to Pisidian Antioch. This is now his fourth time to visit these churches. This area is roughly known as the area of Galatia. This is where he writes his first letter, the letter to the Galatians, to these churches here, and uh, in the first uh, book in our New Testament, the book of Galatians. Then he travels from here, and he probably bypasses Colossae, uh, but he'll later write a, a letter to the church at Colossae, and he comes here to Ephesus. I want to pause there for just a moment. Paul had visited Ephesus briefly on his second missionary journey. Now he's coming back on his third journey, probably the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, and he's come there, and he's going to settle in for at least two years and three months, and according to one account in the book of Acts, he's there for three years. So he's starting a church, he's shepherding the people, he spends three months teaching and preaching in the synagogue, and then he's kicked out of the synagogue, and he rents a lecture hall, the, the lecture hall of Tyrannus, in the the, um, in the Agora, the public square, and he teaches there for another two years at least. And, uh, and then finally has to escape uh, from town uh, lest he be put to death. So anyway, he's in Ephesus for a long time. I wish like anything, I could take you through the stories. All of Acts chapter 19 is devoted to talking about what Paul did in Ephesus, a really big deal. I'm gonna talk about that this Tuesday night on my Vespers. So this is something I had to cut out for time for the sermon. But Tuesday night at Vespers, if any of you are interested in joining me, just go to Pastor Adam Hamilton on Facebook. And uh, I'm gonna be coming to you live from my man cave at my house. And I'm just gonna walk you through what happens in Acts chapter 19. I just love these stories. I'm going to have a little show and tell to share with you as well. And you can also read the story if you subscribe to our GPS, our Grow, Pray, and Study Guide. To find out how to do that, go to core.org slash next, and, uh, and you can subscribe to our GPS, and you can read daily. We send you scripture readings. You'll read about what happens in Acts chapter 19 uh, on Monday's readings this week. So after, uh, let me just show you actually a little more about Ephesus. So this is such a cool place to visit, and I've been there multiple times, twice in the last month. So uh, I want you to see this. Ephesus uh, is a few miles from the Mediterranean, from the Adriatic Sea, but there is a harbor that was a uh, built inland here to access the city. This harbor was fed by the Caister uh, River, and it's silted up now. It's silted up ages ago, but you can still see the sort of uh, you know swampy areas here. But I love the fact that when you look at this, you have a chance to imagine these ships coming in from sea, and they're docking here, and people are either coming or going to Ephesus. So they're coming this way. This is Harbor Street, or Paul's going to leave down this street, Harbor Street. We're going to come in from the top of Ephesus. So when you visit uh, the town, you come in from the top, and you come down Curitas Street, and you come to the Library of Celsus right here, and the triple arches of, Saint, of, uh, of uh, Emperor Augustus. Paul passed through those triple arches, and you come over here to the theater. Let me just take a closer look here. Again, you have a chance to see, here's Harbor Street. The harbor is right over this way, and the great theater. We're going to walk down. I'm going to show you this in a moment. We're going to walk down here and we're going to come down Curitas Street. These were magnificent villas in the ancient time, in the ancient world. And you, if you're there, you have a chance to see them. It's amazing. The Library of Celsus, you'll recognize it when you see it. Uh, this was not there in Paul's day. It was built a, a few decades after Paul. You're going to come down. This is Marble Street over here. This is, again, the Agora. And Paul has rented a lecture hall, we think, somewhere in this vicinity here. And, uh, and then finally, uh, you end up at the Great Theater. And this is where Paul leaves from, and he heads down this street over here. Let's take a look at a little video. I just wanted you to have a chance to feel like you were there in Ephesus. It's one of the coolest set of ancient ruins in the entire world. Take a look. 
So here you see, this is Curitas Street coming downhill. To the left is the fabulous villas. Uh, again, you're walking on marble streets from the time of Paul. Paul walked on these streets. These stories unfold right here. There's the Library of Celsus. And, uh, and to the right, the triple arches of Emperor Augustus. Paul walked through those arches to go on Marble Street. You come through just past them and you come to the Forum, or the Agora actually. And it was here he rented a hall and lectured for two years. This is the great theater. And when you read Acts chapter 19, the chapter concludes in this theater. And you can see the Harbor Street that went out. And if you look carefully, the grass looks different out there in the distance. That's where that harbor was. And so, uh, so Paul's here for, again, three years and has a huge impact. I'll tell you, I said last week, Paul never probably pastored a church with more than 150 people. The exception could be Ephesus. And we certainly know he had an impact on thousands of people's lives there, even if he didn't pastor a church of more than 150, maybe it was two or 300, but he certainly had a huge impact. You'll read about that in Acts, Acts chapter 19. All right, so from there, Paul finishes his third missionary journey. He travels back to all the churches along the Aegean Sea that he visited and started on his second missionary journey. He's back in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, goes down to Athens, then he goes to Corinth. He spends three months in Corinth, then he goes back and he visits all those churches again. He's receiving an offering because he's heard there's trouble in Jerusalem and the Jewish believers are struggling. And so he asked the Gentiles to give an offering to their Jewish brothers and sisters back home. Very powerful story of what's going on there. And then Paul ends up making his way back. He, uh, he goes to, he stops in Troas. He goes to Miletus where he meets the elders from Ephesus. Then he makes his way back to Jerusalem. And on his way back, every church that he's visiting near the end of his journey, they're warning him. Paul, the Spirit's telling us, you're going to face hardship in Jerusalem. You're going to be, maybe you'll be arrested. Maybe you're going to die. When he meets with the elders of Ephesus that he'd really come to know and love over three years, they weep because he says, this is the last time you're ever going to see me. In Acts chapter 20, verses 20 through 22 through 24, he says this to the elders of Ephesus. He says, now, compelled by the spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem. I don't know what will happen to me there. What I do know is that the Holy Spirit testifies to me for, testifies, testifies to me from city to city that prisons and troubles await me, but nothing, not even my life, is more important than my completing the mission, my mission from God. In the end, he's going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested, spend about four years in prison there. He's going to end up being sent to Rome. He's going to spend a couple of years, maybe four years in prison ultimately, and he will be beheaded for his faith around the age of 56. All right, so with that as backdrop, what I want to ask is, you know, what is it that defined Paul? What is it that made, him po made it possible for him not to give up? Because you look at all the, all the adversity he faced and you think, how did this guy keep doing this? And it's a bit of a reminder that really in life, life is sometimes hard. It just is in every part of life. There are in our careers, in our relationships, in marriages, in faith, there are times that life is hard. In our physical bodies, we're gonna lose people. We're gonna experience hurt and pain in life. That's not the bulk of what we experience. Most of what we experience is not like that, but there are seasons and times that are hard. And what we're gonna learn from Paul is the keys to how we keep going. And the first key I wanna mention is, is the most important. It's just a simple, you know, one word. It's perseverance. Perseverance. Perseverance is tenacity. It is a. It is an unwillingness to quit. It's not giving up. It's not quitting. It is. Uh, it is the uh, tenacity. It's persistence. And so Paul has this in spades. Perseverance. And what I'm going to share with you is that nobody can accomplish anything worth accomplishing in life without perseverance. That's true. If you want to get good at something, you want to be great at playing the piano or a violin or something else, it's going to require perseverance. If you want to have a great marriage over the long haul. So I, I officiated at a wedding Friday night and there was a young couple, I just dearly love them. And in my wedding homily, I shared with them, 
this is the one word that every couple that I've interviewed over who had been married more than 50 years said they were, that was required to stay married for 50 years. The word, perseverance. I mean, marriage is hard. It's beautiful and wonderful, and sometimes it's hard and frustrating, and sometimes you fall out of love, and you, and you hang in there, and you keep working at it. Now, not every marriage can survive, but, but most of our marriages you know, are better when we are living what the gospel teaches us, and we don't give up when it's hard. Levon and I have been married 41 years. There have been seasons that were just hard, right? And, and yet we persevered. And how grateful we are today when we look back and go, thank you, God, that you helped us to persevere and not to give up when things were hard. I spoke with a pastor this last week. He pastors in, a, in the South. He's a really great gifted pastor, started a church and, and grew it you know, by leaps and bounds. And he said, Adam, the last four years have been the hardest years of my ministry during COVID and the polarization in our country, you know, the, the and nasty emails, and the people leaving the church. And he said, it was just so hard. And this is a more conservative church in a more conservative community. It doesn't matter whether you're conservative, centrist, or progressive, you're going to have the same things happening and you're in leadership. That's true in the business world. We talked about last week, it's true for teachers and medical people. No matter what you do, there's going to be times that are hard and there's going to be times that you're criticizing, times that you you feel like giving up. That's part of life. I think about people who've reached out to me this last week alone. So I, I was thinking through, you know, contacts I had, phone calls, conversations with people, and, and people who just reached out by social media. One woman wrote, reached out and she said, I'm going through the darkest time in my life right now. You know, I'm guessing that there's hundreds, maybe thousands of you who are listening right now who could say this last year or right now where I'm at, darkest time in my life. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble but I have overcome the world. We will go through dark seasons, really dark seasons. And what we do is we hold on tight. We hold on to our faith. We don't give up. We persevere. And when we persevere, what we find is the darkness begins to dissipate. We find that we find life again, a light and joy in our lives once more. Or in some cases, physically, we aren't going to recover. And what we find is that death is swallowed up by life in our passing. We don't give up. We persevere. Paul, a lesser person than Paul, would have given up a hundred times with what Paul experienced. Let me just remind you of some of the things that Paul experienced. This week, I went through the book of Acts, and I just started reading through once more all of Paul's experiences in every town that we just talked about a moment ago. So in Acts chapter 9, Paul's converted. He begins preaching the gospel. He's in Damascus, and, and he's gone there to arrest Christians. Now he's preaching the Christian faith, and the leaders of the synagogue want to kill him. He has to escape by night. They try to kill him. Now, I, I think I might, if that was my first pastoral appointment, and as a pastor, I start preaching, and people want to kill me, that might have been the end of my ministry. So then, then later on in the same chapter, he goes to Jerusalem three years later. And what happens in Jerusalem? The leadership who thought Paul was on their side trying to, you know, trying to put the Christian movement down, they see him preaching Christ. They want to kill him. He has to flee and go to Caesarea Maritima and, and sails away and is basically disappears for the next 14 years. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey. They travel again to Pisidian Antioch, and the people in Pisidian Antioch, uh, he's actually literally thrown out of the town. Acts chapter 14, the people of Iconium try to stone Paul to death, but he slips out before they can, they can accomplish this. In Lystra, they actually do stone Paul to death, or they think they do. They think he's dead, and they drag his body out of town for the vultures to eat it, and, and then he... he you know, comes back. He's, he's revived. Uh, you get to Acts chapter 16 and Paul and Silas now on the second missionary journey 
are uh, beaten and put in prison. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And then you go from Acts, uh, from Philippi, they go to Thessalonica, and they're run out of town after three Sundays in Philippi. You go on to Athens, and he's taken into custody and testifies before the uh, the Mars Hill, the, the, the uh, leadership of the city of Athens. You go to Acts chapter 18, and you find he's in Corinth, and he's drugged before the governor on false charges. Charges They could have killed him there. Then, then in Acts chapter 19, when he's in Corinth for his third missionary journey, there are people who begin to harass him. And later he'll say it was as if he was fighting wild animals in Ephesus. And it's possible that he was imprisoned in Ephesus at some point that we don't, we don't even know about. He goes back on his uh, third missionary journey to go visit Corinth, and he's chased out of town after three months in Corinth. He goes to Jerusalem to bring this offering from all the Gentile churches. And while he's at the temple, they, the crowd there recognizes him, and they try to kill him. Only the Romans save him. The Roman soldiers save him. And then while he's under Roman you know, guard, I mean, he's under their, their watch, twice more, there's an attempt on killing, uh, to kill Paul. He then is sent to Rome for, to face his final trial and he's shipwrecked while he's at sea and he finally gets to Rome and he's put in prison once more and then he's beheaded for his faith. You get the idea that maybe this guy had a pretty tough life, that he experienced a lot of hardship in his life. And he actually describes it in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 11, uh, verses 23 through 27. So this is Paul's life experience in his own words. Listen, I've been imprisoned more often than anyone else, meaning any of the other disciples. I've been beaten more times than I can count. I've faced death many times. I received the 40 lashes minus one. 40 lashes were thought to kill you. I've received the 40 lashes minus one from the Jewish leadership five times. I was beaten with rods three times. I was stoned once. I was shipwrecked three times. I spent a day and a night in the open sea. I've been on many journeys. I faced danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my people, danger from Gentiles. I faced dangers in the city and in the desert and on the sea and from false brothers and sisters. I faced these dangers with hard work and heavy labor, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food and in, co- in the cold without enough clothes. You get the idea here, right? Wouldn't you have quit? Like, I think I would have quit. I, I think I would have thought, you know, Lord, you're not helping me any here and I'm just done. I'm gonna go do something else. I'm gonna go back to making tents. But he didn't do that. He persevered. And because he persevered and didn't give up, the Christian faith was sent to the Greco-Roman world, became the third, it became the, the religion of a third of the world's population, the largest religion in the world. It was because of that that we have 13 letters in the New Testament written by Paul that continue to shape our lives to this day, to this day because he refused to give up the tenacity, the perseverance. He would not give up. I think about the Energizer Bunny or the, or the Timex watch. It takes a licking and keeps on ticking. That was the Apostle Paul. All right, so the question I want to ask is, what were the keys to his perseverance? How did he manage to do this? Of course, the Holy Spirit was working in him, but there were other things. And this is what I want you to take away today from this message. These are four keys. When you look at Paul's life and you study it, you find that these four things seem to have sustained him. There were more than this, but just at least these four I want you to hold on to. So the first one we find when Paul is in Philippi. So again, the second missionary journey, he's gone to Philippi, he's been arrested and they have beaten him. The, the tool that they used to beat him was something called a fasces, a fasces. And, and this is what they looked like. They were a series of rods that were bound together with leather straps. And then there was a larger handle. And some of these had a blade sticking out from them, but, but some did not. And these were used like a baseball bat to beat people over the back. Paul says three times he was beaten with rods. Beaten with rods doesn't mean one you know, little tap. I mean, somebody out there, the Roman lictor comes along and beats these people on the back over and over and over again with a fasces. 
By the way, fasces, this is this, the title for this uh, piece. It became a signal of authority or sign of authority that one, one had. You had the authority over somebody's life and death. And this is where the term fascism comes from, from the fasces. All right, so the, he's beaten and then he is thrown in prison. And one of the interesting things when you go to Philippi, I've been there many times, was there was some of you not long ago, uh, just to walk up to the traditional site of Paul's prison cell. And I thought you might enjoy seeing it. And, and this is where Paul and Silas were thrown in prison. Go ahead and play the clip. And, and so you walk up to it and uh, you have a chance to remember the story. We stop and we read the story here of how after they were beaten nearly to death, thrown in this prison, inner prison, no, no, uh, no windows or doors at that time, or windows, there were doors, but no windows. And it was here that Paul and Silas are placed and having nearly been beaten to death, bloodied, bruised, in a great deal of pain. And, and this is what we find they're doing at midnight. Now, for me, I would say, if it was me, I would have been lamenting. I would have been angry with God. I would have been saying, you know, enough. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm, I'm finished. But Paul didn't, and Silas, they didn't blame God for these things. They knew that it was people in the darkness of their own minds who did these terrible things to him. It wasn't God. But this is what's, what we read in Acts 16, 25. Listen, here's one of the keys. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. I want you to catch this. They were praying and singing hymns to God. They didn't turn away from God in the midst of their adversity or pain. I know so many people who get disappointed with God and walk away because they assume that God has either caused these terrible things to happen or God should have made them not happen. But we live in a world where bad things happen to good people. Jesus is the paragon of this. He's the son of God, the only perfect human who ever lived, God in the flesh, and he's tortured to death on a cross. The Christian faith does not teach that bad things aren't gonna happen to good people. The Christian faith says that that bad thing is never gonna have the final word and that God is able to redeem the suffering that happens. And that's the perspective Paul has. We're gonna see that in a moment. So Paul turned to God, not away. Silas sang to God. And then an earthquake comes and, they're, and, they're, and the prison doors fly open and the shackles are released. And then God does this amazing thing, you know, in converting an enti- the, the, the Philippian jailer and his entire family that night. But here's, here's what I want you to remember. Turn towards God and not away in the midst of the adversity. When you do that, and Paul's looking for things, you know, he's, he's able to sing hymns of praise because he still knows all the goodness that's in the world despite the pain that he's walking through. So we read when Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, he goes from Philippi to Thessalonica, when he writes a letter back to them, that church had seen Paul run out of town. And Jason, the leader of that little church, had been imprisoned after Paul left. And Paul writes this to them, rejoice always, pray continually, or pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. First Thessalonians 15, or 5, 16, and 18. And so when we read those words, he's saying, in all circumstances, he's writing to people who'd suffered in all circumstances, pray and give thanks, turn to God, rejoice for the goodness that's still around you and know that God is walking with you. Find something to rejoice in. So it doesn't mean you're happy. It just means you turn and in the midst of praise, you feel God's presence you find that the prison doors fly open in our hearts and in our lives when we turn to God in the midst of suffering. This week, I received a note from a woman, uh, a leader of another church in another city. She said, Adam, when uh, you prayed for and anointed me at this year's Leadership Institute, I was facing a diagnosis of cancer. I'm writing to share that I do indeed have bone cancer, possibly bone marrow cancer. I will be beginning radiation treatment soon. Please continue to pray. And then listen to this. This is what she says. I will continue to praise God for every blessing and trust that God's hand is guiding this new journey I'm on. She didn't say, I know that God's going to make me all better. I'm going to be instantly healed if I just pray hard enough. No, 
She knows I may get better and I may not get better. I'm praying that God will use the, the radiation. I'm praying that God will help me, but I'm also praising God no matter what and that God will help me on the journey that I'm on. All right. We don't thank God for cancer or adversity or pain, but we do continue to praise God in the midst of the storms. And we find that sometimes the prison doors in our own lives fly open. All right, so that leads to the second key. The second key is that Paul saw adversity behind every, excuse me, Paul saw opportunity behind every adversity. So Paul didn't see suffering as God's doing, but he did believe that God is capable, that God is willing and has the power and has the desire to force good from the suffering and pain in our lives that God doesn't want to waste any of that suffering in our lives. He didn't cause it, but he says, we can do something together with this. I can force something good to come from it. That again is the, is the message of the cross, that Christ was tortured to death, and yet God used the cross as an instrument to redeem and save the world and as an expression. We now wear crosses around our neck, this instrument of, of, of uh, execution in the first century. We wear them around our neck as a sign of the love of God. God transforms the pain so I want you to hear what Paul says when he writes to the, to the Philippians. He's writing now from a prison cell in Rome back to Philippi where he was in prison first and beaten with the Fasces. And he says, I want you to know, beloved, I, I think this is fascinating. He says, I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me, that his arrest and sent to prison in Rome, what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. I love this. This is what he's saying in essence. You know what? I'm in prison in Rome. I got a free trip, a courtesy of the Romans to Rome. I've been wanting to get to Rome all this time. He'd written to the Romans. I want to come see you. He said, I got to go there, courtesy of the Roman Empire. I end up showing up and you know what? I'm, first he's under house arrest and then he's in a prison. And he says, how else would I have gotten a chance to preach to these Roman centurions? What an awesome opportunity I have that here I am and I get to preach and they get to see that I'm willing to die for my faith. I thank God for that. He said, I rejoice because that. He writes the epistle of the Philippians. It's his letter of joy. Eight times he uses the word rejoice in this letter, only four chapters long. You can read it in about five minutes, but over and over and over again, rejoice. And he's saying that as a prisoner awaiting news of whether he'll be executed. Romans chapter eight, verse 28, one of those great verses in the Bible that everybody should memorize. And it's sometimes too loosely thrown around, but listen to these words again. We know that God works all things together for good, for the ones who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say that God causes all the things that happen to happen. Like It's not like every, you know, the suffering, God wanted that suffering to happen to you. No, but it's happened and God can use it. God can work through it just as he did with Christ, just as he did with the apostle Paul. That's what Paul's teaching us. That's how he was able to face his suffering with hope as he knew that God could work through all of these things he was going through. So, Paul at one point says about uh, the role suffering played in his lives and in ours. He says, we boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. In our lives, suffering forms us and shapes us. And it either makes us bitter and resentful and unhappy people, or somehow in the middle of that, God is at work in our suffering. And we yield that to God and he forms character in us and he forms hope in us and perseverance in us. And then compassion and kindness and empathy for other people walking through suffering. I was thinking in our own congregation, how many, literally, I think I could come up with thousands of examples of people who went through something hard and how God sustained them through it 
and then how God used them to bring something good as a result of it. I think about a couple of our staff people. So uh, Tom and Marcy Langhofer, Tom is on our staff. And many of you remember Aaron, their daughter, several years ago was killed in a terrible accident. That wasn't an accident. It was, it was a shooting that happened at first Fridays in downtown Kansas City. But a bullet, a stray bullet ricocheted off of a building or the, or the street and struck Aaron while she was in the front of a food, food truck waiting to place an order. And there she died in the arms of her boyfriend. It was terrible. And Tom's one of our pastors here. It was just a, just a horrible Horrible thing that happened. And in the middle of that, what Tom and Marcy, in the middle of their pain, were determined to do was to figure out how do we keep, how do we keep Aaron's legacy alive? What do we continue to do to bring good from the pain? That was a decision they made. God help us to be able to do this. And they started, you know, they thought about how uh, Aaron, her work that she was doing as a social worker, she was working with women who had been battered and abused in domestic violence. And they immediately, they, they had a, a, I think it was a clothing drive, if I remember correctly, for these women. And then they, they started looking at how do we help women in Kansas City who are in difficult circumstances and difficult places. And, and so they start raising money. And every year they've done this uh, Do Good for Aaron campaign. You can find out more about Do Good for Aaron on our website at, at core.org slash next. And, uh, and this year, the funds are going to the Yates Center in Kansas City, Kansas. And again, it's a center for domestic violence for women who've experienced domestic violence to help them, counseling and other ways that they're helping them. And, you know, out of the pain that they've experienced, they find a bit of joy and a bit of healing and a bit of hope knowing that Aaron's legacy continues as they continue to force good to come from evil. Paul talks about that too. Do not be overcome by evil, he says, but overcome evil with good. This becomes his marching orders. He teaches us again and again, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I, I think about uh, Lori and Corey, uh, who are part of our staff. Lori Troop is overseeing all of our early childhood centers. And Lori and Corey lost their daughter earlier this year, Caroline. She was a, a medical student at the University of Kansas Med School. And there was a, um, a genetic disorder that was undiagnosed and she didn't wake up one morning. Now, she was, while she was in med school, she was working for JDOC. This is a medical clinic. Many of you have heard me tell the story. This is a medical clinic here in Kansas City for people who can't afford Medicare or Medi- uh, Medi- to have their medical needs met and they don't have access uh, to the same resources most of us have access to. And so this is a free clinic for them. And she was volunteering down there. And, and so after her passing, her mom and dad determined to be used by God to force something good to come from the pain. That they, they have a, a 5K run for JDOC. This is done every year. And, and they get out all of her friends. And, you know, I was out there as well. It was a joy to have a chance to walk and run that 5K, raising money for JDOC. And they, they're looking over and over again at ways that they can continue the legacy that their daughter left behind, that they can continue her story as they are helping people receive medical care. That was her passion. I think about the parents in our congregation who've lost children to suicide. And as they lost their kids, usually teens, as they lost their kids to suicide, so many of them have said, we want to do anything we can to make sure no other parent has to go through the hell that we've walked through. And how can we help teenagers to find a reason to keep going? And so they've invested their time in caring for teenagers and developing resources and raising funds for this. And the joy and beauty, I heard this just a few, I think it was about a month ago, I heard that there had not been a single suicide in this school district in the last year. Thanks be to God for that because there was an epidemic of suicides a number of years ago. And a lot of these efforts that these parents have, have said, you know, we're going to, with God's help, be able to do everything we can to make sure no one else makes that same decision our child made. 
is, is a picture of how God forces good from suffering and pain. Every funeral that I preach where there's a tragic death, I talk about the same thing, that God forces good from evil, but the way God does that is he uses people who say, here I am, Lord, use me. And this is what the apostle Paul knew. This is part of what he was counting on is that out of the suffering that he experienced, somehow God's glory might be seen and revealed. Somehow people might hear the gospel in ways they hadn't have, wouldn't have otherwise. This is true for any person who's been through suffering. You put it in God's hands and there's a way that God can take and bring something good and beautiful from our pain. God specializes in redeeming suffering. All right, here's the third point, the third key that we see in Paul. And that key is actually, I'm gonna let you try to figure out what that key is. I just want to read a passage to you. This is in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. And it's describing Paul's, again, his third missionary journey. And he's on his way back to Jerusalem. And people are figuring out that he's probably going to be arrested or maybe killed in Jerusalem. And in Acts 24, we re- 20, verse 4, we read this. Uh, he was, Paul was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, by Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, by Gaius from Derbe, and by Timothy, as well as Tychicus and Trophimus from Asia, that is from, from Ephesus. What's the key here? And I'm guessing you guessed it. It's that there were people who came alongside Paul to help him. We call them around here stretcher bearers, people who carry you on a stretcher when you can't walk on your own. They carry you on a stretcher before God and praying for you. They continue to lift you up and care for you when you can't do it on your own. How many times I've watched this happen. This very week in our congregation, people who are in, in the hospital for surgery, people who had lost loved ones, and then watching people come alongside them and carry them and care for them. I met two women this week as I was uh, in, in our uh, foundry hall and uh, in the commons area by the cafe. And as I was there, uh, one of them came up to me and she said, Pastor Adam, I don't know if you remember, you reached out to me when my son had died. Her son had died, I think earlier this year. And, and, uh, and she said, I said, what are you doing here? I'm so glad you're here. I gave her a hug. And, and uh, she said, I'm in this group with other women who have lost loved ones in the last couple of years. And, and there next to her was a woman who'd lost her husband in the last year or so. And, and these, she said, it, it makes such a difference to have people who are walking this journey with me who understand the pain I'm walking through. It was a beautiful thing to see how they were helping one another, carrying each other as stretcher bearers. For you, you know, well, I'll just say this. Everybody needs a stretcher bearer sometimes, not just one, a whole team of them. You're gonna need that sometime. But the best way to make sure that you have stretcher bearers when you need them is when you've been a stretcher bearer for other people when you're making sure if there's a neighbor who's suffering or going through something hard and you're there for that person, you're bringing meals or you're mowing the yard or you're helping do the laundry or you know, whatever it might be, sending notes, just say, I want you to know I'm thinking about you today. Whatever it, whatever it is that somebody needs, taking them to the doctor. You see, when you're willing to do that for other people, you find that that comes back to you. The blessings come back. And so we invest ourselves. Now, this is part of the important role of the church. In the church, we are the body of Christ. We are people, we are a family. And we come together to care for one another. That's why if you're worshiping with us online or on TV, it's important to get connected somehow. We want you to do that through the life of our church. If you can come in person, we want you to do that. If you can join one of our online study groups, do that. We have online groups all across the country who gather together online and they care for one another in that way. But this is the task, is that our task is to be stretcher bearers for each other. The Greek word is koinonia. It's usually translated as fellowship. And and what it really means is mutual care for each other. It's not just playing in the softball, you know, softball league. That, That can be part of it too, but it's befriending each other, caring for one another, lifting one another up. And that's part of what it means to be a Christian as well. We need that. Other people need that. And, and the way we know we we're likely to have it is when we've been giving it. It's also sometimes when we're suffering, we, we step back and we sort of, we, we sort of cocoon, 
But in those moments when we're walking through suffering, what we really need is people. It's just hard to realize that. It's hard to feel like you want to even reach out. You just want to go and hide. And yet we need people to come alongside us and to carry us. All right. Paul believed, this is the last one. Paul believed that death would not have the final word. I don't want you to miss this. Ultimately, the reason why Paul was so resistant, so, or, you know, so uh, persistent and, and demonstrated such perseverance and was willing to suffer is he knew that Christ was raised from the dead. You know, around here every year at Easter, we say, you know, I get to the end of the sermon, I say the same thing. You know, uh, uh, you know people ask me, do you really believe this, you know, this Jesus rose from the dead? Come on, you're too smart for that. And, and, you know, do you really believe that when we die, we're gonna go, you know, our bodies lay in the ground, but we, you know, go to be with God. And, and my answer is always the same every year. Every Easter sermon is the same way. I not only believe it, I'm counting on it. Paul was counting on it. And the reason why he could count on it is, is he was a persecutor of Christians jailing and torturing people to try to silence the way the followers of Jesus when he was encountered by the risen Christ. He met Jesus risen from the grave. And he had this tremendous vision and he heard Jesus' voice. And from that time on, he knew that Christ was raised from the dead. And the, I, the knowledge that Christ was raised from the dead. So when we know that Jesus rose from the grave, then we also know that we will rise from the grave. Christ's resurrection, Easter was God's way of saying, listen, the worst thing isn't the last thing. Pain and suffering don't get to have the final word. And there is always hope. In the end, life will conquer death and love will conquer hate. And he took that to the bank. He was counting on it, which is why he could go and face, you know, whatever he was facing. He was willing to go out and to preach, even though he knew he was probably going to get beaten for it or put in prison for it or maybe beheaded for his faith. But he knew that death was not the end. So Paul says this in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. He says, we are afflicted 4 and 5. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. And then he says this slight momentary affliction. That's how he described his his pain and his suffering. This slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. And we know that if the earthly tent we live in, our physical body is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, so that is so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. I want to end with this passage of scripture, Romans chapter eight. I love this passage and it captures how Paul looked at adversity and suffering. He says this, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded or convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You may remember seeing one of these posters says, you know, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? But really for Paul, it's what would you do if you knew you couldn't die? If you knew that in your death, there was a victory and that you would live forever, what would you do? And what Paul did was take the gospel to the world. I want us to end with a prayer. And this prayer is one that comes from the United Methodist Service of Death and Resurrection, our funeral services. And I want you to listen carefully to its words because it invites us to live as people, you know, to to enable us to die as those who go forth to live and to live as those prepared to die. And I'd love for this to be your prayer because this was ultimately the key that led Paul to be able to transform the world. 
Let's pray this together. If you'll say it out loud, wherever you are, just whisper it. Oh God, help us to live as those prepared to die. And when our days here are accomplished, enable us to die as those who go forth to live so that living or dying, our life may be in you and that nothing in life or in death will be able to separate us from your great love in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Lord, I pray for all of these at all of our locations, online, TV, help us to be people who have perseverance. Help us to be passionate about following you. May your light shine brightly through us, O God, that others might know you because of us. And help us, O God, to remember these keys that Paul gave us, to remember to turn to you and not away from you in the midst of our suffering, to, O Lord, remember that you are able to take our suffering and our pain and force something good to come from them, to remember that we need to be each other's stretcher bearers, and we need stretcher bearers in our lives. And to not only believe, but count on the fact that in you, Jesus Christ, death has been swallowed up in victory. We commit our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for watching this week's sermon. We'd love for you to join us again for live worship online or in person. To learn more about Church of the Resurrection, please visit core.org. Have a great week and we'll see you next time.